This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, long form, and unscripted. Deep Color is supported by the New Art Dealers Alliance. NADA is the definitive nonprofit arts organization dedicated to the cultivation, support, and advancement of new voices in contemporary art. NADA's 2019 summer programming includes NADA House, an off-site exhibition on Governor's Island in New York City. The exhibit features presentations by 45 artists from NADA member galleries and nonprofits installed in three historic turn-of-the-century colonial revival houses. The collaborative public exhibition will be on view every weekend through August 4th, 2019. To learn more, visit newartdealers.org. This episode profiles Sarah Zapata. Sarah makes textile-based installations and sculpture. A recent installation featured a combination of tall vertical wall hangings, works on the floor that might reference rugs or pathways, and a series of coiled vessels with foot-like appendages. Other works can take on the form of architectural ruins or monuments and are completely covered in a shag of yarn and explosions of vibrant color. Sarah's work underscores an incredible commitment to craft and focused labor and surrounds ideas connected to the collision of identity, spirituality, and personal history. We recorded this conversation in her studio in the Red Hook section of Brooklyn. little bit of you know I've read some interviews with you and sort of preparing Mm -hmm. you seem pretty comfortable talking about art is that fair to say I think so yeah Yeah. Yeah. Um, because one of the conceits of this project is that we're primarily or I'll identify myself as a visual communicator okay I like images I like making things and putting it out there to communicate something Mm -hmm. Um, but here we are using verbiage yes and audio Mm -hmm. so there's a paradox there absolutely um but one of the things i think and you and you can correct me if i'm wrong you like to write and you like to read absolutely as part of your um, process in here Mm -hmm. and i'd like to think that that helps with um you landing on language for how to talk about your work exactly is that something to go into yes of course i think um Language is is something certainly I'm always thinking about, Mm -hmm. and um, it's important to me to feel articulate. I think that um, I'm a very nervous person, but I'm also very controlled, and I think really understanding English, um, which is my only language, I definitely don't want to assert anything, but but really celebrating it and feeling um, really thankful and excited to express my experience um but also i i think about fantasy a lot and um and certainly that's something that i'm always interested in with my visual work but that's something that's really exciting about text as well it's like especially when i was starting out i was so broke and what's a way that you can be really excessive and fantastical for free is through text and you can really create these like very extreme narratives um in this way that is really not possible elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you probably know artists that don't like talking about their work. Yeah. I mean, it's a challenge, and I respect that. Like, on there are days where... There are days. There are days, all. right? Like, no, I'm not. I, I can't I can't talk about it yeah. for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. 
And sometimes I feel like this project is threading that needle. Like some yeah. of this stuff is und undefinable mm -hmm. and undescribable and maybe comes from a place of fantasy. And sometimes we can't talk about that with words. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think too, like, um, like I'm from Texas, like coming here, I didn't have this like fancy art degree. And so I think it, it really whipped my ass into like, how can I like be very sophisticated in like presenting my point of view so people will actually listen. Yeah. Sometimes I think it's maybe a responsibility of the artist to find a way to engage people mm -hmm. about their work in conversation. Yeah. I think that's important. It can, Absolutely. it can underscore stuff in the work. It can, um, hopefully support it, mm -hmm. um, and create more connection between the viewer and the object and you, the maker. Absolutely. So I think there's value in that in, in what we're doing right now. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's also too, like the work is so beautiful and that is obviously important. And I'm interested in like the complications that exist within beauty, but I never want that to be the only reading of the work. And so that's also why text is so, so important to really accompany it. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I feel like I'm compelled to do in this project is use adjectives mm. and describe work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's an itchy zone, but, but I'm forced sometimes to categorize yeah. what we do in here, right? Mm -hmm. Would you, I mean, I, I would describe your work as textile-based. Yes. Uh, uh, I, and I would often put it, put it in the category of three-dimensional or sculpture. Mm -hmm. Are these accurate? Would you take these terms? I would yeah. gladly take these terms. How do yes. you, how do you describe your work to other people in these sort of conversations we're talking about? Um, I think the words that I have really been drawn to lately have been installation. Um, because really it's, it's obviously, yes, it's all very sculptural. It's always, um, based around textiles, but it's I'm what I've been really interested in lately is um, creating an experience for the viewer, and so installation sort of like enables um, people to kind of like let go of conceptions because it's a a genre that is very open, and um, one that I think finds a lot of freedom, and you don't and but the central point is that you understand that you're like coming into this composition the viewer is suddenly becoming part of the work as well and so um that's certainly what i've been really interested in describing yeah. lately yeah that's well said and you know engaging that view in the in that way steering them through an installation exactly, because yeah. the point of view is going to shift depending on how you move around an object exactly and i know from your your installation at not a house is something that the viewer can walk 360 degrees around yes. And then also your recent show, well, fairly recent at Delhi, mm -hmm. um, was a full room installation that, that had work that was on the wall, seeping onto the floor, mm -hmm. objects placed on the floor. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, was there a reference to a labyrinth in that installation? Yes, there was. Talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, so that show, um, well, let me start. The The previous uh, solo show that I had at Delhi in 2017, um, people could actually remove their socks and shoes and come onto the work. And so that was um, this really wonderful experience where I wanted to create an environment for people to sit and really spend time and have this sort of communal engagement. The sculptures were about the size of a seated body to really encourage um, 
encourage people to do that. Um, and then after that show, I really wanted to take away that sort of comfort and um, thinking about how work can direct individuals and be activated by the human body without physical touch. Um, that's when I started really getting interested in this idea of a labyrinth. Um, so all of my work has uh, an element that has to deal with Christianity, and that's something that I'm always processing, and it's also very related to textiles, um, as well as um, elements of Peruvian culture. Um, so it's sort of like melding my identity um, to like these larger constructs and how they can be manifested through um, this material. But um, labyrinths are common in a lot of churches. The oldest one that's in existence is at Chartres, and it's from the 14th century. A lot of them were destroyed um, because they were seen as pagan, which they were, but um, the surviving ones uh, kind of have a lot of different sort of amalgamations. And there's actually this website that's called like Labyrinths of the World, and you can put in your zip code and see all the labyrinths that surround you. And really all over the world, they are really punctuating a lot of these spaces. Um, and so one that I got interested in particular is this one that's in Manhattan that's at the Marble Collegiate Church, um, which is um, this church that basically had uh, this pastor. His name was Norman Vincent Peale, and he was uh, the, the father of um, Christianity and psychology. Um, and he uh, really created this idea of positive thinking. And he sort of had this very reputable reputation in evangelicalism until his ideas just kept getting like very, very wacky. And he um, equated sort of success to only monetary in, um, success. And it's interesting because he is also the pastor of Donald Trump. And so you can actually see. Is he still alive? He is not still okay. alive, yeah. Um, but he married um, Trump in his first two marriages. Trump was a, a member of this church. Um, and he has Trump has cited Peel as one of his most formative figures. And really, if you watch his sermons, you can see a lot of congruencies that exist. Mm. Um, but in particular, there is a labyrinth at this church. And so I wanted something that um, would kind of like make reference to these things, but also my sort of interpretation of this labyrinth. Real quick, uh, the labyrinth at the church, is it like in tile or like where is it within the church? It's, I'm trying to picture where sure. it might be. Um, so in this particular church, it's on an offset. It's not in the like main sanctuary. Um, it's in its own sort of building that's literally, it's, it's on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 30 or 29th street and then there's an adjacent building that's on the side so the labyrinth sort of has its own encasing um and it's inlaid into the floor okay so it's yeah. like a tile pattern exactly okay right and labyrinths are not mazes they're not synonymous um, a labyrinth is just a single solution whereas a maze obviously you are getting into wrong turns and this and that whereas a labyrinth it's is like a puzzle exactly yeah and a labyrinth is more so to guide the the viewer, the worshiper on this journey of like sort of like letting their mind go and just letting their feet sort of like be their guide into this um, existence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we mentioned the word labyrinth uh, as it popped up and, and you wrote about it with with uh, with the release for the show at Delhi. Um, some of the other words that or, or things that I think about when I consider your work um shaggy i know that word comes up a lot with some of the the tufting <laughs> yeah. work that you do mm -hmm. um 
monuments. Some of the yeah. uh, freestanding sculptures feel like versions of a monument, or maybe even like you know, like a piece of non-functioning furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've even seen pictures or video of you in social media, like sitting in your yeah. work, almost mm-hmm. like a couch or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, three-dimensional, as we as we mentioned, um, but then some of them are more tapestry-like or mm-hmm. more prayer rug-like, right. and they're involving pattern, mm-hmm. which is sort of synonymous with textile work right. and pictorial stuff. I know some of your work has faces in it too. Yeah, um, maybe this is a good spot to talk about some of the patterns and particularly the the concept of a stripe because I know that's mm-hmm. something that you've unpacked. Yes. Can we go there? Sure, yeah. absolutely. Um, so stripes have been something that I um, have been interested in in researching. Um, the stripe has a very contentious history. Um, there is biblical text that talks about how an individual should not wear a fabric that is made of two. And so there's two interpretations of that. One was that um, a stripe because it's two different colors, and then another is of two different materials. Um, But from the medieval uh, period and forward, basically anyone who was uh, on the fringe of society, a prostitute, poor person, jester, a clown, like was designated to wear stripes because it was seen as untrustworthy. And and from that period, basically, um, we get the lineage of the jail stripe, um, as well as the American flag, as to show a point of rebellion. Um, The very first American flag was actually the Union Jack in the corner and then all of the stripes coming out of it. So it was pointing that they were obviously being very rebellious and disassociating themselves. So um, I had wanted to use them to sort of think about this very specific um, material um, or not necessarily material, but... um, figuration Mm -hmm. on the material and how um, that can sort of create these sort of like depths and foreground and and backgrounds with these pieces and especially because they were considered untrustworthy what does that mean and how can that become more complicated once you start adding the figure into it so um, with those rugs they had a lot of different faces that were on the pieces and um, I was thinking about them as sort of um, these uh, stained glass windows almost. Oh, yeah, because they are colored. They're they're colorful. It's like a... Very colorful. Like a figure with like a magenta face or a green face mm-hmm. and the white of the eye is orange or something like yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. Kind of cartoonish or yeah. abbreviated in a certain exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so I, I was thinking about stained glass windows and how they sort of flank the viewer or the worshiper in the church and they're these like very like polite and positive sort of narratives when actually they're like very dark and there's a lot of... Um, just sadness and depression that exists within these narratives and what does it look like if that's actually something that's more representative of these so um, I wanted what I picked for these pieces was sort of these different narrations of guilt and guilt is something that I'm always thinking about and really again processing with these works Um, but so obviously there's such a range of emotion that exists within guilt and that itself being this sort of societal control that we're sort of programmed to pay attention to yeah um and so the faces came from um this museum that i visited uh in the summer of 2018 um and so i went to visit my family in peru Uh, my family lives in um some live in lima and some live in this small coastal town that's called pura and um so 
I was traveling back down to Lima on a bus by myself and was stopping in these northern coastal towns. And um, there was a museum there in La Mayeque, which was very incredible. Um, It had this royal tomb. He's basically considered the the King Tut of South America. Uh, Okay, yeah. And so there are a lot of these um, different ceramics and metallurgy pieces um, and different faces that existed. And so what I liked by these faces, they had this very um, vast range of emotion, um, but also they were sort of these genderless sort of um, pieces. And so I wanted something that was sort of this like anti-hero, anti-gender sort of representation and bringing that into these pieces. And what I love about simple drawings is like everyone kind of has their own like very specific um, connection to it. Yeah, they're bringing their baggage. Exactly. And so I wanted it to be sort of these like very simple sort of renderings, but also like these very complex emotions that existed. Yeah. And they, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, we're not looking at the pieces we're discussing, right? We're so we're we're relying on memory here. Yeah. But the figure was behind the stripes. And you mentioned the prison connection Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. almost the stripes ask um operating like a a barrier or an like a cage Mm -hmm. Uh, so i picked up on that yeah Um, the other thing with stripes uh, just as like a formal tool or a design tool is the the rhythm Mm -hmm. the visual rhythm and Mm -hmm. the pattern and how i think our eyes and even our minds maybe might be conditioned to gravitate towards that sort of structure Uh and order Mm -hmm. um yeah, I mean, even the pieces right behind you, which, are those yours? These are mine, but um, okay. these are, uh, like, these are weavings that then get cut up and added to something. Okay. The weavings, I always have weavings in my work, and it's mm-hmm. something that's, like, I feel like the foundation. Uh, but it's never presented just as a weaving. Right, um, right. It's something that I just have to do on principle. I think it's, again, like, I think it's an incredible material, but what I love about it is that it can continue to transform, which a lot of people feel like it's too precious. Right, And um, I'm interested in breaking that down and how that value is still inherent, though changed. Yeah. I guess the reason why I ask if those ones are yours is because they, they feel a little bit like the spirit of them or the character of them is different than say this piece there yes. or this piece there. But I was going to say like, like, you know, they are right behind you. So I'm like looking at them as I speak <laughs> right. to you, I forgot but, they were there. but they, but they, they, they have some gravity to them. There's like uh-huh. a, like a color gradient through the stripes uh-huh. depending on the space between each stripe. Right. Um, this one's sort of like a range of pinks and reds and maybe some violets down there. And this mm-hmm. one's like that lovely, um, uh, span of blues that might include indigo and there's maybe even like a like a slate gray in there too mm-hmm. um that but one. yeah i mean I, I i keep referring to them oh yeah visually I, I, like, I, they're right there <laughs> <laughs> i it's so funny because i forgot they were there and these are very old this uh like blue silver and nude one actually is probably like six years old and i was you thinking call it of nude I would i say nude because um i was thinking of the dallas cowboys and um an exploration on that palette. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, I guess the, before I, I lose this question in my <laughs> yes. mind and like co- kind of going back to the tactility of your work mm-hmm. and uh, the, the, the materiality mm-hmm. and then remembering how important installation is. Yes. How often are you dealing with viewers wanting to touch your work? 
all the time because there's an invitation there <laughs> it, and it comes from like a place of curiosity and joy mm-hmm. i imagine almost like a small child like right i want to caress that mm-hmm. but that must be something that you have to uh, um, negotiate pretty regularly yeah it's something that i i feel like i always have to think about um like even the piece that's at not a house right now um that is not supposed to be touched and even just seeing pictures of it <laughs> i can see that people have been touching it yeah um, because the, the, the grain is interrupted on <laughs> yes, the, on exactly. the, on the yarn. Mm-hmm, yeah. Exactly. Um, but I think I'm really interested in that relationship. And I think that's what I love so much about textiles is that we all have this very important relationship to it, um, that we really cannot escape. And that's also what's so interesting in its congruencies with, um, religion and spirituality, just as much as humans have been needing to clothe themselves, they've also been questioning like where we come from and so that's something that's always very interesting and I'm and I'm really um I'm really interested in playing with this relationship of like giving the viewer a chance and then also taking it away and like really sort of like fucking with them in this way um just so they're like again never comfortable I never like the work feels like very lush and shaggy obviously but I I want that to sort of always be a push and a pull yeah that's well said uh, let's let's talk about the Nada House mm-hmm. project, and maybe maybe we can connect that connect that to ideas because the proposition, um, as I understood it from Nada House, is like we we have this space. We'd like you to respond to the space, so you're almost like presented with some version of a loose, moldy, yeah. wet clay idea, mm-hmm. and then you respond to it mm-hmm. as the artist. Yeah, how did you sort of? approach that as a maker did you take that and run with it or did you just sort of retrofit an existing idea within the the context or Mm. i mean this is something i think that um uh artists often have to think about is is what what the driving force is behind why the thing gets made is it coming from inside from us or is it like a commission Mm. or some proposal for some outside project right tell me about how you approach this not a house project um, so it was, it was a big journey to be honest, because I had just come off of my solo show at Delhi and that was a large undertaking. It was also very different, I feel like, than work that I've shown in the past. And so that in itself was sort of a very nerve wracking experience. Of course. Um, and so I, and going into that show, um, of this world rather I was really like I'm never making another shag rug I'm done I'm yeah. never gonna do it again like I don't want to be known for that you got it out of your system maybe you thought right yeah. I thought and then the nada opportunity came up and um, I had really been wanting to keep working with these ruins and I wanted something that was very different from of this world rather and so I of course, like went back (laughs) to working on these shag pieces, but I wanted it to kind of have the same control that existed um, in that previous show. So again, like really taking this visual language that I've been really cultivating for so many years and not abandoning it, but sort of like continuing to learn and move forward. Um, So I had made some of these like sort of like ruins. I call them altars. I want them to look like right. these. these are the things I was maybe referring to as monuments. Yes, exactly. Ruins, okay, yeah, exactly. Totally, totally. Yeah, monuments, ruins, 
perfect. Um, So I, and what I want is for those to like look as sort of these like strange, um, like associations in time. Like they look like they're ancient. They look like they're futuristic. They look like they're from the seventies. It's, it's all sort of this like very sort of like strange time warp that I wanted. Um, And so I had wanted to really um, do something that existed with memory and that sort of like duality. And so I picked two different colors and everything was made very tailored to the wood pieces that were underneath, which was not how I had worked prior. Um, so really not a house gave me an opportunity to sort of continue exploring and, and really because of time, like helped me make decisions quickly. Um, because it was a fast turnaround. It was very, very fast. Yeah. We didn't get much notice. (laughs) We really didn't. We really didn't. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I think that is of note with your installation at Nada House is the sunroom that it's in. I think it's a sunroom, so, like I it's a so, full. Yeah. You've got windows on on three, three of the four sides of yeah. the room that you're in, so you so the natural light is really pouring in, mm-hmm. which is activating the the sort of vibrant colors in your yeah. piece in a really lovely way. But the other thing is that you can see it from the outside. Yes. So my introduction to that piece was on the walk on the path up to the house but I could see in and there's this like monument of Mm -hmm. color and I was like oh I think that's Sarah's piece yeah so that experience for me and this whole like inside outside thing and that as like as like the invitation to go in and check out was pretty powerful yeah um yeah it was really nice let's talk a bit more about ideas um you mentioned guilt Mm-hmm. I know that self-doubt is something mm-hmm. that comes creeps in for a lot of artists, myself included. Yeah. Um, and then maybe another word I'll throw in there is vulnerability, mm-hmm. especially when work leaves the studio where yeah. we're putting it out there for other people to consider and to judge. Yeah. And then, and then maybe we'll, we'll, we have to wrestle with those interactions with other people in our work. Talk about guilt and self-doubt and like where they creep in. And I know mm. you mentioned um, guilt as it's connected to religion and yeah. sort of this interest and study that you do on that. But does it manifest itself in your life in the studio, outside of the studio? I mean, when do these things uh, uh, hit you? I mean, I I will have to say that I deal with guilt, I think, every, every day. Every, every minute of my life as not only as an artist, but just as like an individual. It's something um, that I... And I don't want to say that it's a negative feeling either. I think it's also a celebration in this way. Like something that I always make a point of saying is that like I feel thankful every day. Like I am living a life I was never supposed to have. And I think that that is something that like even just like being here and being able to live my life, like I feel so thankful. And a lot of that is because of guilt. Um, and but um in terms of work, um, I mean, so I'm originally from Texas and I um, was raised very evangelical Christian. And so um, I had a lot of guilt with being a lesbian. Um, and because it's still, I have a very contentious relationship with my family. Um, and it's something that I really didn't understand until I left Texas. I think when you're growing up and you're in this like specific sort of environment, it's sort of difficult to understand your perspective. And then when you're able to step away from that, I think that's when really you're like, wow, this is not normal or I'm normal or I mean, normal is such a problematic word, but you need distance. Um, and so 
I had always been working in textiles. Um, I started when I was a kid, really, like I was just like trying to make clothes for myself, really to sort of convey any like of my own experience. But I started weaving when I was 18 because my father's from Peru and it's like I wanted to sort of like honor this tradition. And I think, too, when you're coming from like a mixed background, it's it's complicated because you feel like you have to um, really talk about both experiences and what does that look like for your life. And sometimes you're forced to choose one over the other at certain times, particularly in social situations. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So um for me, like working in textiles was a way to really honor and understand and investigate that. And not only being Peruvian, but my father sold textiles in Peru. My grandfather, excuse me, he sold textiles. Um, and my father is an engineer. And I had always heard that um, weavers who were um, women in earlier times, like had they been given opportunity, would have been engineers because it's basic mechanics and this like really beautiful technology. Um But so when I got to New York um, after college, I had so much guilt with being a lesbian that I started writing foot erotica. And so... um, Foot erotica. Foot erotica. Can you, a few sentences, describe what foot erotica is for listeners that might not know what that is? It's it's very interesting. It's actually mostly like a gay male um, sort of narrative-based exploration. And so that was also something that attracted it to me to sort of like make that more lesbian and like, what does that look like? Um, And feet came up just because... um, they're a common archetype to talk about your relationship to Christ, your trajectory through life. They're a sign of humility in the Bible. Um, but also from an evolutionary standpoint, they're really what defines us as humans. We're the only full-time bipedal mammals. And it's because of the evolution of our feet that we are the way we are. Um, and so really that writing practice was a way to sort of like navigate my guilt and really yeah. talk about it. Um, Cause a lot of it, has text from the Bible. Um, and it's not, it's never in a way that's disrespectful. I mean, I don't think it's disrespectful. I don't know what evangelicals would think about that, but, um, I always come from it as a way of respecting this text, but also, um, almost using it as a material in this way or like collage with text. Um, and so that's something that I do very often is using biblical text and, I am very critical of Christianity and evangelicalism, but I'm also very protective of it, Um, especially if people don't have any relationship to religion. It seems like very stupid. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's just very ignorant. I think it's important to understand people have very different perspectives. The evangelical community is very problematic, yet um, it's better to criticize while informed. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably a good rule. Mm-hmm. being informed before you criticize. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, guilt is a powerful force. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think guilt can be good. It can be de- crippling at times. It can be but, debilitating, yeah. But it, it, uh, um, it suggests that you have a value system. Mm-hmm. And it suggests that you you understand empathy because you're exactly. considering someone else's feelings. Yeah. And then you're measuring your own value system against someone else's experience which i think fundamentally is a good thing i think so too it's true and that's what's so complicated about it it's like very much this 
this element, this invisible element that we all have to deal with. And it it does make society better, but it also can make society worse. It's it's such a complicated yeah. sort of existence. Yeah, I was raised Catholic and, yeah. and deal with my fair share of that condition, conditioning and, yeah. and the guilt that's associated with that for sure. Right, right. Um, you know, we're sitting in your studio here. And one of the things I said when... Um, I was setting up the microphones and the recorder was like, I, I think I'm a little envious of your space because, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I said I, I go on all these studio visits. We're sitting in a garage. Yeah. And um, I, I know it's a shared space with some friends we have in common. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're in the back, which is like a more cleaned up, painted space. So you've got nice overhead lighting. You've got works um, that are maybe in progress or maybe complete. Okay. surrounding us old these are old We're older works old, old you've, stuff. you've got um shelving with different books and then on top of that are your different um yarns and materials to weave with and i know that around the corner there's a pegboard wall with different spools of thread mm-hmm. on it mm-hmm. you've got we counted one two three different looms in <laughs> here you've got a sewing machine yeah talk about how you wound up in this garage. I mean, because most artists either work at home in their kitchen mm-hmm. or they have a studio space, right? right? That's in this building on a floor mm-hmm. and you pay too much money for it. Right. You know, I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience right I now. Mean, but I have to. But we, we talked about this as like maybe a potential hack, like working in a garage. Yeah. Talk about how you landed here. I mean, I, I love this space so much. It's definitely um, like being inside and outside at the same time. You really um, feel the elements um but right it's hot it's it's hot 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 in the summer and cold cold in the winter really cold um but you know there's something again that I really like about that I think again humility I feel like I have to really deal with anything to do my work I'm happy I'm happy to be here and I love the space um but so I live next door with my girlfriend and her uh sister and husband have a furniture business um, and so they use it for storage and we rent it from our next door neighbor who's a wonderful older woman who's been in the neighborhood her entire life and a contractor had this space prior to us. I remember that person here. Yeah, yeah, it was full of junk, Yeah, full of junk that we had to get out and then, um, but apparently it used to be a horse stable and it used to be a candy store it's um, gone through a few things and um, and yeah, when we got it, it was just a mess. There was all of these like shelves that I ripped out. I installed this drywall. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more formal back here. In yeah. there, it feels like storage garages, exactly. furniture. I can see the insulation sort of falling off the wall. Yeah, exactly. But it's a it's a like these are maybe fifteen foot ceilings. I mean, we yes. you have a little loft over us right, here, right? Exactly. But it's a big space. It's a big space. Yeah. It's um, it's been incredible, honestly. Like I. I've had two other studios in New York. Prior to that, I was working out of my apartment. I had my first loom in New York, which was this teeny little folding loom, which I loved. Um, And after that, my two studio spaces were nightmares, rats in both of them. And Ah. knock on wood, no rats here. It's been amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we can pivot into the process uh, in which you make your pieces. Mm -hmm. The loom is obviously important. Yes. Um, and I know one of your starting places is reading mm-hmm. and doing some research. Yes. What happens after that? Do you do you like do small maquettes or little tests or you just sort of like go for it? 
Um, very good question. I mean, so it, it always starts with research. I feel like that's really where I get the most of my ideas, especially because I'm always thinking about time and always thinking about history. And I always want that to be a very central component with the work. Um, but after I've really found um, like all the things, all the information is sort of making sense. Um, then actually I do these watercolor sketches of it. And oh. so um, there's a handful that here, you can see like these, yeah, some yeah. sculptures. And then that's actually um, the labyrinth. And here's some of the like ruin ones back over here. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so the watercolors really help me to visualize like what the ideas are going to be. And then the construction of the work is always decided at the beginning. And I think that I have to have that in order to really move forward. Do you sort of see it completed before you start? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And so I know it seems like chaos, but it's always, everything is very controlled. And I think that that's something that I'm interested in now is really conveying that to the viewer instead of just being this like heap of yarn. I want it to, um, really present to the viewer that this is like a very specific and planned environment that mm -hmm. they're coming into. Right. And do the watercolor, so in that planning, I imagine that you're figuring out some of the color relationship stuff exactly. for the watercolors. Yes. And then do those, is there a one-to-one -one correspondence between the colors in your watercolors and the colors in the textile? Like how much matchy-matchy do you do? There is not that much matchy-matchy. <laughs> I wish I could be that crazy, um, but I am not. I um, It's more so just like the general idea of it and then moving forward. I think in my head too, even what I see changes and it's important to really understand how the materials are working together because um, even though the material is the same, it's all yarn, that in itself means nothing. There's so many different kinds of yarn in terms of like the material, how it's dyed, how it's spun. Like there's so many different, the thickness. And so it's important to really, for me to also like, understand where everything is going and then step back and um and then be okay with changing sure uh i mean this i'm going to show my ignorance with the world of uh, okay. textiles but are there rules or maybe not rules but are there like problem spots when you mi mix like acrylic yarn with say yarn that's from an animal wool mm -hmm. or something like this or like can you blend those things is it sort of open range or are you setting yourself up for problems if you mix different types of fibers it depends what you're doing okay but um sometimes yes sometimes no like weaving um the thing is because like all of these are like art pieces they're not going to be really used right so that in itself is like a savior and that i don't really have to think about like pilling or um these other sort of like very sort of technical Feet elements walking on it and wearing exactly. sections out yeah exactly so that is something that is um a luxury sure. certainly but um there's definitely like even the yarn that we're looking at this is all all sort of like nasty acrylic yarn and so there's like hierarchies that exist even within the yarn that I have there's yarn that I have that's only used for weaving which is the nicest then there's rug um yarn that's used for the hand tufting gun which is how those like striped pieces were made and then ones that are just used for the shag rugs which are actually sewn they're not woven a lot of people think that they are latch hook or that they're hand woven but they are sewn wow the other, I think, important um, piece to the craft of this mm -hmm. is time. 
Yes. I mean, time is such a valuable resource for weaving and textiles mm-hmm. and working on a loom. And the the sort of physical physicality and labor yeah. of this and the rhythm you get into mm-hmm. with sending the, what's it called again? Shuttle. The shuttle back and forth, yeah. back and forth and pushing that, that piece back and forth and almost making, I imagine it sort of sounds like music at certain times, at least maybe to someone that's not familiar with it all yeah. the time. But can you talk about like how times m- might evaporate in this process mm. or the sort of like trance that one might get into through mm-hmm. this way of working yeah is that of interest no of yeah. course i mean it's i'm always thinking about time time is certainly um my utmost currency and there's a saying that weavers don't need uh clocks they need calendars um because it does it takes a lot of time and everything is very hand done and it's just me which is again, I'm very thankful for. And I, I actually like sort of being the brunt of all the labor. It's something that I love doing and it takes a lot of time. And one has to be militant with your thoughts because you can like really be working away and just spiral on your personal problems. For sure. So that's something that you you, don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I, um, I mean, I have, and I do, but um, you can't do that every day, you know? You right. have to be careful. I imagine also, with real quick, with, with the process, particularly if you're like weaving an image, you have to pay attention to what you're doing. Yeah, there's, there's exactly. There's not much margin for error? Um, no, I definitely think there's there's margin for error. Okay. Um, that's something, again, a misconception with textiles, or at least how with I am. I, there's always going to be something that can be saved. Even if you cut something off you can fix it. And I think that that's like, I'm, I strive for technical perfection, but I welcome mistakes. Sure. I think that that's important. And again, I think that's also coming from this tradition. Um, technical perfection is very important. Like I don't use glue. I think that that's like, it's a source of pride certainly for sure. me. Focusing on the, th- on the task at hand, mm-hmm. allowing your mind to maybe wander into other life s- situations. Right problems problems what what we're gonna have for dinner like like it sounds Mm -hmm. like you you kind of try and focus on the thing and like Mm -hmm. you know you've mentioned control it sounds like you're you're in control of the object in front of you you're in control of the process yeah and you're also focusing your your sort of emotional wave right into a space exactly and i think that certainly like i want these works to um serve almost as I don't want to say meditation tools, but I want that experience to be meditative for the viewer. And I also want that experience to be meditative for me as well, because it certainly can. There's something so wonderful um, and edifying about re just doing the same motion over and over and over. And so while problems exist for the most part like I do try and like control my mind and sort of like become almost the machine in this way and that's what is so great about weaving is that like it's so physical it's your feet are working your hands are working it's it's like you become part of the machine right right yeah you've talked a little bit about um your biography uh family in Peru Mm -hmm. uh grew up in Texas up in Texas, yeah. Can you recall maybe what your introduction to art was? What introduced you to art? Was there something in the home or did someone show you something? Did you have a teacher? Was it a book? You know, it's it's very interesting because I've been thinking about this a lot. And um, so I grew up, it was more so like a musical family. Um, like my mother was a trained opera singer 
and um, she taught piano and voice. And my sister is a classical pianist. And I was always interested in art. I don't know what it was, but even like my parents were getting divorced when I was in second grade. And like, I obviously was like losing my mind, but um, the thing that like I was able to do was I got to take art lessons. And so um, I would make like these ceramics and I like made paintings. Like the one painting that I have is like a painting of like a rat and a butterfly. <laughs> and Do you still have it? Uh, I think my mom does oh, somewhere. But, um, but so it was weird. I always wanted to be an artist. And I think that sort of like fluctuated as you know, one does when they're young. And for a while I wanted to be a fashion designer and whatever, but I always knew that I had wanted to come to New York. And I think that I have my father to thank for that, certainly. And I think, especially because he was an immigrant, like we were able to see like other parts of the world. And he is someone who like moves, he would move in his life. And I think that that was exciting to see because a lot of Texans, will be in Texas till they die. And um, so he took us to New York when I was in seventh grade and it was a week before September 11th. Oh, wow. And so I actually like have my ticket still from the top of the world, the trade World Trade Center on September 4th, 2001. And I think for me, like I, that was like a sign in this weird way where, um, where I was like, this is I, where I needed to be I like had already gone and I loved it and it was like a it felt kismet almost in this way yeah. I know that sounds horrible but um, no no I understand uh, place and how that place affects us mm-hmm. uh, is huge yeah. Um, yeah it's great that your father brought you here when you're young like that it's true um, that's also why I don't have a Texas accent I was very conscious of how I spoke really yeah so I did not want y- you it. sort of like trained yourself out of it yeah even living there even living there yeah. so if you were like to go back and visit your family and friends Sometimes everyone has it'll, an accent it'll most people still do yeah. to be honest yeah. and especially like my that side of the family like they still have an accent and mm-hmm. i mean my dad has a Peruvian accent so i think it's nice i ha- kind of have like a in between sure so i of. think we do that you know we all come from different places and yeah. there's like a way of speaking that's kind of specific specific to that community and that culture exactly and then we move somewhere else and it sort of fades but then it like creeps back in at yeah. times i know that's i think that's not out of the ordinary it's true um are you a full-time artist i wish but yeah. no absolutely not um i definitely have a day job so is you know this is sort of what I, where i want to get into um how we survive as artists yeah um, the day jobs that we have and how we sort of pay for this life, yes. especially in this town. Especially, um, I guess the first question is, is, is it a goal of yours to be a full-time artist? I, I think so. Definitely. Yeah. I think for a while I've had, um, I've had the fantasy to teach, but I also have not been to grad school. Right. And so that has been something I've been thinking about honestly for years, but I also like, that I haven't. And I also want to make it a point for individuals. Like I went to a busted state school, like you can do it sort of situation. You don't have to follow this like singular path to right. get these to these like where... blue chip art schools yeah. that get you from A to B to C. Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. know, I feel like that, that narrative is maybe not as fast, but it's, it's slowly coming apart. I hope so. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. I hope so. Um, 
what do you do? What's your day job? So my day job, I work three days a week. Um, it's the same job I've had for six years, um, which is very unusual, I know. But again, I know what I want and I keep my eyes on the prize. I'm a Capricorn and I like try like to build everything around my life to like get that singular goal. Um, but I have worked for a yarn company. I work um, in a yarn office mm. and uh, help with hand knitting and crochet patterns. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, th- you're lucky in that the work that you do is sort of connected to your, your exactly. arts making practice. Uh-huh. Um, the other thing I'll say, and this is something that I, I believe in, um, even for artists that are successful, like having some other thing going on mm-hmm. that generates income to take the pressure off of the yeah. art because I think we get into this pickle where like commerce and business gets connected to the art making and yeah. it, like takes something away. Yeah. At least that that's my experience. No, I can see um, that. So, I mean, I think day jobs are fundamentally not a bad thing. I agree. And I think also having, um, another world that you can just kind of be a person is very important. I think it's ego is a problem in the art world and it's very easy. Like you're making your work. You're just with yourself. You're just thinking about your ideas. It's very easy to sort of like build this huge ego in your head. And so having a separate sort of existence is actually like a nice escape. That's well said. Let's talk about um, artistic hygiene. And this is a reoccurring topic that I like to bring up. I know okay. it's a funny term, yeah. but I, I say that like in, in, in two ways, really, like how we take care of ourselves emotionally, but also how we take care of ourselves physically. Working on the loom, you know, there's a lot of repeated motion yeah. and you're probably thinking about posture and you probably, uh, it looks like you have to sit on this loom. Yeah. Um, are there things that you do? Do you take breaks to sort of make sure that you don't get carpal tunnel sooner than you should? Right. Do you know what I mean? Um, I mean, I try and take care of my body as much as I can. Like, uh, working out is something that I do three to four times a week and it keeps me sane and I love it. Um, but in terms of that, that is something that I have a problem with. Again, I'm a Capricorn. All I want to do is work and especially literally living next door to my studio can be difficult at times because all I want to do is work. Um, and actively resting is hard for me. I will be honest. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you. Where do you think that comes from? I mean, it just, it never turns off. There's always, there's always something that you could be working on, whether that's reading or writing or making the work there's, it's never over. And I think also as artists, we're never satiated, mm-hmm. which is a great thing, but it also can be very exhausting. For sure. What about, uh, taking care of your psychology you know like we talked a bit about guilt we talked a bit about um self-doubt you know another word that i think enters a lot of artists lives or feeling is anxiety because this life is challenging how do you take care of yourself on those fronts um do you keep are you social do you go to events do you participate in like openings and and these sorts of things Or, or where do you where do you how do you navigate those things um, I mean, I I think certainly making work is very um, important to my psychology and helping me process um, what my life is and what my life has been. 
Um, and there's this quote by this Chilean poet, Raul Surita. He said, um, I'm going to butcher it, but basically like we make art out of turmoil. And I think that that's so true. And I think about that a lot in that, you know, we are artists who present these perspectives and because of what we've been through in our lives and not only on a personal level, but what that means with larger constructs. Um, so that's something that I'm always sort of like processing while I'm working. Uh, but I do like to be social. Um, I love my red wine and I love, (laughs) um, I love clothes and I love to like see my friends and be out. And I think that's important. I don't have as much time for that as I would like. Um, but that's okay. Yeah. I mean, the work is the work some days. Yeah. Um, You know, I feel like, is it fair to say that, that your work, is landing in and primarily operates in the contemporary art world. Yes. You know, there's a, there's a distinct bridge back out of that into the the tradition of craft. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously craft plays a role in any sort of art world. And I'd say art worlds because it's a plural place. Um, Is there any sort of discomfort straddling those two worlds for you? I know some people like are like dedicated crafts people and like fuck contemporary art, you know, like, I mean, I believe in like seepage and weaving, but I'm just wondering, right. <laughs> to use the word weaving, but uh, <laughs> I'm wondering where, where you land on that line. Absolutely. I mean, I um, am a textile artist who exists in the contemporary art world, and I feel very thankful for that because there are a lot of people who have not been able to cross over. Um, and I am thankful for the craft world. I find it to be very stimulating in terms of technical work. But um, and I don't think that craft is a dirty word, but I also do not want to be considered a craft artist. And I think that's just in fairness to what the whole practice is like. Yes, it's in textiles, but it's also like symptoms of other like stronger concepts and a part of this whole sort of like narrative that I'm trying to create. Do you ever think about I mean, there's some days where, you know, I've been making drawings and paintings for I mean, I'll argue 40 years since I was three years old, two years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are days where I don't want to do that. I want to make film. Yeah. I want to yeah. I want to uh, um, do some other sort of creative endeavor. Mm-hmm. Are there moments where you'd like to jump this art world and participate in another? I actually, yeah. I mean, I have um, a solo show coming up in at the end of July at Institute 193. It's in um, Lexington, Kentucky. And it's going to be the first time I'm showing in the South. And it's actually going to be my watercolor painting. So um, that is going to be a very interesting sort of endeavor. I feel like right now I'm like trying new things, but also, but also like it makes sense in this way. Um, and and I think absolutely, like I have made some film stuff, um, but I think it's when I am most tempted to try other mediums, it is honestly out of laziness because <laughs> I want, that's fair. I want something that just like is that instant gratification. And, and some days you're like, I want to walk away with something and you know, that's you good awareness. Cause you know, these, these textile pieces you make take hundreds of hours probably a watercolor you could do in one sitting exactly it's important to have that feeling right yeah that's that's good awareness on your part and the other thing it makes sense to me on like a conceptual level too because your show at delhi 
you know, brokered in, in wall work, in tapestries and rugs, in, in arguably flatter two-dimensional right. things as opposed to the, the ruin pieces or yes. the monument pieces. Uh-huh. So that vocabulary of form is not dissimilar to a watercolor. It's a, right. it's a thing, mm-hmm. it's a surface with marks on it that goes on a wall. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a direct connection there for sure. Yeah. It Thank makes you. sense. What was the last piece of exciting culture that you saw, read, experienced, heard? Does anything come to mind? Um, I mean, I have, I've been reading um, this book by Raul Sorita, and um, it's called Ante Parioso. And so it's like before paradise. And he's a Chilean poet who was writing um, during the Pinochet re- regime. Um, when that was happening in Chile and it's very interesting and it's also just like very beautiful. He has a poem that is saying like, my God is like the sky. My God is like the hills. My God is everything. And he wrote this when he was in New York um, and he was at a park staring up at the sky. And then he actually got a sky writer to write that some of the lines from the poem. Cause he was saying like, it's just what connects all of us whether we're in happiness or in turmoil. And it was just a really beautiful sentiment that I've been thinking about a lot. That's great. And you sort of, t- you, you mentioned one of the projects on the horizon, the yes. show in Kentucky yes. of watercolors. Are there any other goals or, or like maybe a dream project that's not even realized yet that you hope to do in the next handful of years? Um, I mean, I'm, I am always dreaming. I guess the next project that I have coming up is in October and that's going to be a performance space, New York. And that's going to be a large installation that people are going to be able to like sit and touch. And so, um, that is occupying a lot of my brain right now. And I'm very excited about that, especially since it's an institution that is for performance and sort of like what that looks like creating an environment that will then be activated. That's great. Well, Sarah, I appreciate you uh, uh, talking with me and participating in this project and all your generosity. It's really great to, to talk about your ideas and, and some of the um, process behind your work. So thank you. Thank you. We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Help support and sustain this project by making a donation online at deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings. Be sure to share this project within your community and subscribe and rate in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.